think about <clears throat> standing before you and being so overwhelmed with awe and love and joy. But that line in there, that as we do stand in your presence, we'll just feel like repeating over and over again, Jesus died my soul to save. I thank you, Lord God, that you have gone to the greatest lengths possible to make us yours. You do not stop seeking. You do not stop searching. We don't find you. You find us. So wherever we've been wandering this week, whatever paths we've been on that we ought not to have gone on, I pray tonight, once again, you'd find us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, welcome, uh, welcome again to Epiphany, folks. It's good to be here with you tonight and worship our Lord together, be able to share a meal and fellowship a little later on after the service. Uh, tonight we're going to be sort of finishing, we've been taking passages out of the Gospel of Luke for most of the summer, uh, just because those were the lectionary texts, you know, the lectionary is that sort of historic uh, collection of passages that is uh, that has been picked out for each weekend of the church year. And typically I will go through just books of the Bible, but during the summer months, because a lot of people are out of town, we'll use lectionary texts. And the last one that I'm going to go over tonight is out of Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. The words will be up there on the screen for you to follow along with. You should know before I get into this also that I'm starting the book of Revelation next week uh, just to creep all of you out. Uh, no, not really. I, I, here's why we're starting it. Uh, I'm going to be going through it chapter by chapter. The reason why is because I think that there's probably not a book in the Bible that is more misunderstood and more confusing and oftentimes has been used to do uh, all sorts of things it wasn't ever meant to do. And so I want to go over it together so that we would have a sense of clarity and, and confidence about what God's Word says there in that book. So join us next week as we start that. All right. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. It reads like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus or hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! 
found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. End of reading. <clears throat> when one reads through the history of the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, uh, it becomes very clear that Jesus had a tendency to attract some very interesting people. The non-religious folks, in particular, loved him. Those who had been ostracized by their culture followed him. The ones whom polite society deemed unworthy found him irresistible. And those who weren't sure what they believed about God found his teaching about God to be very compelling. The Gospel writer Luke describes these sorts of people with the title tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors being those people that had sold out their countrymen for some extra dough from the occupying power at the time, Rome. In other words, uh, somebody society thought of as a bad guy, a traitor. And he says it's those people, tax collectors and sinners, that are drawing near to Jesus. They're coming to him. They weren't forced to go to church by mom and dad, nor did they go to Jesus because it was good for their societal advancement. It didn't give them like a leg up over their other tax collector to get the high-paying tax collector job. No, I mean, these sinners just wanted to be around him to hear what he had to say and receive what he had to give. And then, of course, on the other hand, the other hand, the very next verse, tells us the most religious folks response to this popularity of Jesus with such filthy people. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I just can't help but think of them sounding like that. This man receives sinners. Definitely they didn't sound like that. But. Now it's interesting, the word receives there that they use is an active verb, meaning that they're, uh, they're saying he's doing it all the time. Jesus is, is he's always doing this. And, and also the word used often for someone welcomed as a guest of honor in a, person home, in a person's home is used here. So, so more literally, we could translate their complaint this way. Listen to this. This man, Jesus, is always welcoming sinner to the table as his guests of honor. That's what he's really, that's what they're really saying. Jesus, you go out to dinner with them and you're basically, what, are you endorsing their behavior? Jesus, you ought to know that they are, they need to be swatted down before you come to them. And on and on the grumbles go. Sadly, on and on it goes today, even in the very church, this lover of outcasts and bad people started. Just this week, a well-known prosperity gospel teacher, some of you know him, he goes by the name Benny Hinn, repented of some of the things that he taught that were wrong. 
And he did it on TV in front of the world. He said, I'm convicted that I've been teaching wrong things, that I've been focused too much on money, and I'm not going to do it anymore. And this, of course, is very surprising, because if you've ever heard of Benny Hinn, then you know that that's a sort of a cornerstone of a lot of what he teaches. And it didn't take but 2.3 seconds before the Pharisees got out there and started grumbling, saying, if he's really repentant, I want to see this, 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 and a list of 20 other things to prove his repentance. So in response to all that riffraff that we still see happening today, Jesus tells two very famous parables that show us why sinners indeed were drawn to him and why Pharisees grumbled against him. The first reason sinners were drawn to Jesus is because, well, actually, he sought them out. He went to them. The scholar William Barclay tells us at the time, the Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them the, quote, people of the land. That was what they referred to them as. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and these people of the land. The Pharisaic regulations laid it down this way, quote, entrust no money to these people of the land. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or to have him as his guest. He was even forbidden insofar as it was possible to have any business dealings with this quote-unquote person of the land. Unfortunately, the mindset doesn't go away easily. The idea was those bad people out there may corrupt us and cause us to stumble here in the holy place. We have to stay away from them. We have to guard ourselves. So we'll make our own music and we'll make our own movies and we'll have our own television stations. It's best for us religious folks to just avoid the world and all of its messiness, the people of the land out there. But that's not how Jesus came. Look at the way he describes himself in the parables. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Notice the descriptors there. One is going after a lost sheep. One is diligently seeking so notice a couple things here. Number one, Jesus pictures humanity as lost. He pictures humanity as lost. He does not seek to appeal to humanity by downplaying their condition. He doesn't say something like, well, sometimes we do things against our better nature, or sometimes we just make mistakes. No, he says, you're lost. Every one of you, you're lost, and you need to be found. You're directionless because naturally you don't know what you're meant for. And you're unable to find your way back to the fold on your own. 
Ironically, it was the Pharisees who had soft-pedaled the true condition of mankind by making it seem as if they could somehow work their way back to God, that with enough work they could find themselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're really lost and you need me to find you. And that leads to the second thing I want you to notice initially here. In spite of the lostness, we are extraordinarily valuable to God. Extraordinarily valuable to God. Sinners are drawn to Jesus because he lets them know that. He has dinner with them. He invites them to become his disciples. He fellowships with them. I've said many times from here that this church from the very beginning was built around and has continued to be built around community. And in the early days of our church, when I say it was built around community, I mean... Literally, I would just go out and I'd talk to people, and I'd try and convince them to come to my apartment for dinner uh, every Tuesday night. And I'll tell you, some of those gatherings, folks, some of you might even remember them. I mean, maybe you were here in the early, early days. Sometimes would be the, co- the biggest collection of strangers and oddballs and outcasts you could imagine. You'd have 10, 12 people in the apartment that had no reason to be together at all. People from various different religious backgrounds, some not religious at all. Some people that claimed to have lost their faith and rejected the faith. I mean, you had everybody gathering together. But what we hear over and over and over again from people is, I don't know that I believe what you believe, but I like the community that I've been asked to enter into. I like being with you. I don't think it's an accident that when Jesus meets sinners, he's like, let's go eat. Let's let's eat together. Let's fellowship together. Jesus, well, I'll put it this way. Walker Percy, famous author, once said, we love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their faces away. That's Jesus. As he says in Matthew's Gospel, I've come to seek and save the lost. For for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus sees. He knows the worst of the people. He sees them at their very worst. He sees you at your very, very worst. And tonight, right now, in just a little bit, he's going to say, come, fellowship with me. Eat with me. It's hard not to be drawn to somebody that even though he knows all my shortcomings and failures, Seeks me and loves me like that. The second reason we see that sinners are drawn to Jesus in the text is because Jesus saves them while religious folk condemn them. When Jesus, the shepherd in our parable, finds the sheep, he doesn't scold them for the wandering ways. Notice that? Notice there's not a line in there where the shepherd scolds the sheep. It is the sheep's fault for wandering off from the rest of the flock and getting himself lost. It's true. But the shepherd deals with the sheep tenderly. 
He does not remind the sheep of how badly he blew it. Because the sheep is too weak to walk home on his own, the shepherd carries the sheep on his shoulders back to the fold. Contrary to what you might think, the shepherd is not like cursing under his breath, full of anger at his lost sheep. But he rejoices. He's just happy that the sheep has been found. Increasingly, if you read pieces in the Atlantic or the New Yorker, or when they talk about some of the challenges we're facing right now as a culture here in the States, you will often hear the term aimlessness. People are more distant from the idea of purpose than ever before. And I think we personally sense this most when the things we go running after for satisfaction and meaning in this life don't end up delivering. The things that draw us away from the fold that we think just might ultimately satisfy don't. In this city, we've, it's filled with it. You know, I mean, many people, many people moved here to get rich. And some do. They get rich. It doesn't take long before they realize that it hasn't given them what they were looking for. Or career success. Even if you don't become rich, I mean, at least if you, if you feel like you're able to kind of make it in whatever field you were seeking to go into, and, and you get there, and you make it, and maybe you even get your name on a marquee, you know, maybe you start to really get some buzz about you. Talk to someone who has that experience. Ask them if that's satisfying for long. C.S. Lewis's old dictum is true. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Nevertheless, Jesus, upon finding us, does not scold us, but picks us up and carries our burdens and sins all the way to his cross. And through that action is able to carry us home with grace. One of the best stories I've ever heard of grace is, frankly, the reason it's one of the best is because it has just enough scandal to it to make everybody a little uncomfortable when they hear it. It comes from my friend, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Uh, Dr. Rod has, has been a professor for many, many years at Concordia University in Irvine, uh, apologetics professor, very respected, well-known guy in his field. But long before that, he was, you know, young guy, young man, and did young man stuff and made some foolish decisions. And one night he decided to take a, a joyride with his friends and he got into a bad accident and to make matters worse, he had been drinking. He was drunk. After the accident, Rod called his dad and the first thing his dad asked him was, are you okay, are you all right? And Rod assured him he was fine. Then he confessed to his father that he had indeed been drinking. And Rod was naturally terrified about how his father might respond to that. Later that night, after Rod made it home, 
He wept and wept in his father's study. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He was guilty. At the end of the ordeal, his father asked him one question. How about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? This is how our Lord says he deals with us lost sheep, folks. He looks at us in our mess and says, how about tomorrow we get a new car? And you think about what the father did here. He took the cost of his son's sin upon himself. He, he would be the one that had to pay for the wrecked car. He would be the one that had to pay for the new car. For grace to be offered to one, the other must take on enormous sacrifice. That's precisely what Jesus did to save his lost sheep and his lost coin. At enormous personal pain and anguish, he takes the penalty for your sins and your failures and my failures at his cross and through his resurrection gives us all undeserved eternal life. For free to us, but costly to him, astonishing, unbelievable grace. In contrast to this, the religious leaders of the day saw events like this not as an opportunity to extend grace, but to ex exhort punishment. According to one scholar, the saying at the time was not, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, like Jesus says, but hear this, this was the saying, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. Do you see how revolutionary Jesus is? They think there will be great joy over all those sinners getting what's coming to them. And Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. There's more joy when somebody who's lost repents. Dr. Rosenblatt says every time he tells that story about his father's gracious response to his horrible decision and his horrible accident, there are always, always without fail, people in the audience who get angry. And they say, your dad lets you get away with that? He didn't punish you? What a great opportunity for your dad to teach you responsibility. And he says, I always chuckle when I hear that response and say, do you think I didn't know what I had done? Do you think it wasn't the most painful moment of my whole life up to that point? I was ashamed, I was scared. My father spoke grace to me in a moment when I knew I deserved wrath and I came alive. That's why sinners were always happy to take up Jesus on his offer of dinner. Thirdly, Jesus rejoices over sinners. Religious people despise them. Look at what Jesus says the response is to the finding of the lost lamb and the coin. Listen to the words. Verse 5, when he has found it, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Same thing with the lady who finds the lost coin. Rejoice with me. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's, here's what it all boils down to for you tonight. 
Do you believe that about yourself? That you are so valuable to God, so worth it to him, so loved by him, that he really does party over having you as his own? That he really is filled with joy to have you? Because it's true. And yet even as Jesus is telling this almost too wonderful to believe truth about God, he is also saying to the religious leaders of the day, and sadly all too often, the religious leaders of our day, why haven't you let the world know this? Why don't you give off the air to people? That you would want to throw a party for them if they came home to me. I have found so often when I've talked to people and asked them what they think Christianity is. Again, I, I only mention this because it's just my experience. I've talked to so many people out on the streets here in the city... And so often I ask them what they think Christianity is, and they never, ever mention the message that we've been talking about tonight. They mention morality, and they mention hypocrisy, and they mention how much we don't like this group, or we don't like that group, or we want this to change and that to change, or how politically involved we're in, but they don't mention a God who goes after lost Sinners and invites them to dinner. So I've been convinced for the longest time, and it's the reason I planted this church here two and a half years ago, that because we have such a stinking message problem out in the world, we've got to start changing it. We have to. And if it starts with a little church right here on 20th Street between 1st and 2nd, well then so be it. But we have to change the message. We can't let the dudes that are on TV spouting off their nonsense on whatever cable news station there is out there get away with the last word. No, that's not what this is about. This message is about a God who goes after the worst and redeems them and brings them home and says, Mine with joy. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to wrap up here. As you, you all know, I'm, I'm a dad to three boys, uh, 14, 13, and 7. And I, I have this very vivid memory from about six years ago or so. So my, my young, my, they were, it was my two oldest ones. They were, I think, 8 and 7 at the time. Not old enough to go riding around beyond, like, our street on their bikes, you know. It was a little... Or go scooting anywhere by themselves. And there was this there was this moment when my wife and I had this misunderstanding, and I I thought that they were going to uh, stay with me, and that she was going to go to the store. And so uh, I was upstairs, and just for a couple minutes, and then I called my son's name, son's names, and I couldn't find them. They weren't responding, and. Then I went outside and I called my son's names and they weren't responding. 
And I called my son's names, and they weren't responding. I'm yelling my son's names, and I have no idea where they're at. I didn't know that my wife had already left to the store, and I didn't know that she had left to the store with my two boys in tow. But they did. And no, not more than five minutes or so after yelling their names out loud, I remember the sense of utter relief I had when suddenly I saw my two boys scoot around the corner onto the street and yell out, Dad! And I, and I think about that sometimes whenever I think about this story. Because it's just a glimpse of what I think the heart of God is when it comes to looking at the world around them. Or we're looking at the world around us. Like there's this sense of lostness and this sense of not having control over uh, where they went that I felt, and yet the sense of utter joy when they finally came home. And so the door is, is open to all. The father is still saying, and come home, and he's coming after the world out there saying, come home. There's a party waiting for you. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. And there is unending joy back there. Will you pray with me? Father, help us be bearers of this message. The message that declares you are a God who goes after scandalous, broken, needy sinners. The, the world is, in my experience, Father, and you know this, the world around us here is convinced that if you exist, you're not all that happy with them and that you're ready for judgment at any time. Matter of fact, if they feel anything about you, they feel that judged. And they feel it by your people too. But here in this passage, here in what we've talked about tonight, you're the, you're the God who goes after the lost sheep. You're the God who goes after the lost coin. So help us, Father, even as we acknowledge that they are indeed lost. Help us bring the good news that you're searching and seeking diligently to happen as, their, as your own. And now, Father, we pray the prayer our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.